Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Dear Sugars is here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear someone, won't you please share a bit of sweetness with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So here we are, Steve, tonight at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. And we, you know, we do these live shows maybe once a year or so. We always love it because it just, it's so wonderful to see you all. You know, when we are in the studio making the podcast, I always think like, is anyone even listening? But then everywhere we go, people will come up to me in the grocery store and say, I was in the next aisle and I heard you and I recognized your voice from the podcast. Yes. I do not have that experience. (laughs) But interestingly, people will occasionally walk up to me uh, at a bus depot uh, or a down-in-the-mouth diner and they'll say, uh, are you Steve Allman? And I'll say, yes, I am. And they'll say, do you think Cheryl Strayed would blurb my book? (laughs) (laughs) So as... Our listeners know we almost always have a topic or a theme, and tonight we are going to discuss this theme that is the title of Steve's new book, Bad Stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote about it in the, the cultural, political, collective sense, but so often the advice we give is about counseling people to revise that narrative, to think of a new way to think of their lives, their relationships, or their capacities for change and transformation. Right. Um, And I just feel like that's really the core of our advice is this story revision. You say it all the time. You say to our letter writers, you've got to rewrite the narrative, which is another way of saying there's a bad story you keep telling. And you can tell me all about in this letter the bad outcomes. But until you understand the underlying bad story, you're not going to change those outcomes. Can you think of a time in your life that you've had a bad story and you've changed it? Well... Uh, yeah. One of the things I write about in bad stories is there's a kind of, I think of it as American defect. I find in my life when I am focused on my grievances rather than my vulnerabilities, I'm sunk. Uh, you know, whether that's in the context of like around the dinner table or in my relationships or friendships or looking at the news cycle, sticking my hand into the blender of the current news cycle. Um, (laughs) you know, we say, well, why does somebody vote against their own interests? Why would somebody vote for a candidate who's going to take away their health care? Because they've constructed a story in which their grievances are more important than, and in some perverse way, are a defense against their vulnerabilities. Because it's hard to admit that you have vulnerabilities and that you're weak and that you need help from the government or from your community or from your church. It's hard to do that. And 
Likewise, in my life, when I focused on grievances rather than my vulnerabilities, I always head in the wrong direction. The other big uh, story that I told myself for many years, which is the basic story that I need to be great in order to be worthy of love. And that's one I've been trying to work on. Uh, and I'm still in process, as you can tell. What about you, Cheryl? Are there bad stories? I can even think of your columns are oftentimes an exploration of right. your bad stories. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that your ba- one of your bad stories is you need to be great in order to be loved. Mine is I need to be nice in order to be loved. And of course, I think nice is a good quality. I'm not saying that, that kindness and, and niceness is a bad thing to be. But I think that like a lot of women, uh, you know, or when I was, you know, as a girl really raised to be like, just please everyone. You know, if you make everyone around you happy, if you give them what you think they want, um, they will love you. And for me to just learn how to let go of that a little bit and to sometimes disappoint people or to say no, they've been real struggles for me. And, you know, also I was thinking about this today when I was uh, getting ready to come is really at my lowest moment in my life, I was here in Portland, Oregon. I was riding a bus and I was during that time just so, uh, I'd lost myself. I was using heroin. I didn't even know who I was. Mm. And there was a a little girl got on the bus holding a purple balloon. She had two purple balloons. She she tried to hand me one and I didn't take it. And as I wrote on the column, I didn't take it because I felt like I no longer had a right to such tiny, beautiful things. And the older me said to the younger me, you're wrong, you do. And I think that that is the deepest bad story, that we, even at our worst moments, aren't worthy of the tiny beauties that come our way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, a really powerful revision to make. And and that's what we're all striving to do. I think so much of our advice, so many of the, the letters that people write to us, that's really what they're asking. Yeah. So sometimes the bad stories we tell ourselves are not so highfalutin. Um, <laughs> sometimes they are, I met a hot guy in Italy. Yes. And I would like to go back to Italy to have some hotness with that guy. <laughs> so this is the letter we got in our inbox. Some of you might remember a while back, okay, and that we answered this letter. This woman who called herself Wander Luster essentially said what I just said. I met a hot guy in Italy. We all, we, you're, That's you're here? Me. Wanderluster is here. Woo! You know, this, you know, Cheryl, this almost never happens I in know. the studio <laughs> where we'll be like, we're going about to read a letter, and the person just pops up from behind some corner and says, That's me! I'm here! So, you know. Okay, (laughs) this is so good. Okay, so there's clearly only one piece of advice for this woman, okay, who wrote us that letter. But we're going to listen back to the advice that that we gave her, right? Yes. So everyone listen. I have only one thing to say. Oh, my God. And that is there is nothing more beautiful than a hot boy on a Sicilian beach. I I pretty much knew you were going to say that. Wanderluster, Go. Don't even look back. Just go. Have fun. You said you're going to possibly be heartbroken. You know those things. As long as you know those things, go to that boy. Have a blast. Lick your wounds later. (laughs) 
Okay. I can't believe you even are thinking there's another answer to this question. It sounds great. Go with it. Let's go crazy. I get it. But she's really <laughs> proposing to spend a whole bunch of money and, more to the point, invest like a big part of her heart. I think she should know that two things. One, that he wants her to be there and is going to spend time with her because we have all been in situations where it seems great and romantic and wonderful and then that hot Sicilian boy is off with somebody else and you're left in the shadows. I have not been in that situation. I know because men adore you, but just imagine (laughs) for a moment that there is a world in which a young woman who is telling us in her letter that she is emotionally vulnerable to this guy, she's kind of in between things and ready to throw her heart fully into it and she throws her heart into it it lands with a thud on the hot Sicilian sand and it sizzles around while he's making music with some and other And then another senora. hot Sicilian dude comes walking up. Oh my God. And Hope springs eternal thing. here, but she, she wants him. But she's not saying, I believe people when they tell, like what she's saying, yes, she likes him more than she probably should. Heart melting. But she's also saying, you know what though? Like this is, this moment isn't about protecting my heart. This moment is about leaping into the fire. <laughs> I love it when Cheryl doesn't grandstand and totally like push it down my throat. I love that. Okay, but there's something that happened. There is something that happened, which is that Wanderluster wrote us a letter. Later, like a year later. Like a year later, and it just popped into our inbox. And uh, I want to read you that letter, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Dear Sugars, thank you for reading my letter on your show. I cannot express how shocking and thrilling it was to hear two of my favorite people read my words. I am Wanderluster. Hear my roar. The woman trying to decide whether to follow a boy. Trust me, Steve. He's a boy, not a man. (laughs) To Italy for a fling. Here's what happened since then. Instead of going to Italy, I spent that money on another solo trip, this time six months in Southeast Asia. I had the episode downloaded and happened to be on a boat in the middle of Cambodia by myself when I suddenly heard my letter. I was surrounded by locals and didn't have any cell service or Wi-Fi, which resulted in me grinning ear to ear and breathless as I listened to your response, no one to share it with, which in some ways made it even more unbelievable. What struck me about hearing the episode was the facts I left out. I simply removed parts that didn't fit my narrative. Mainly, he never asked me to come to Italy, in part because after our fling, he met someone else. I had a hard time admitting that fact to myself at the time. To add a twist to this, he messaged me and told me that he and the girl were traveling through Vietnam together. In fact, we would all likely be in Hanoi at the same time. I decided not to pursue this and largely forgot about it because I was sick for most of my time in Hanoi, the joys of travel. One day, while I was recovering, I ventured to the lobby of my hostel for a change of scenery, and within 30 seconds of sitting down, I heard a voice, looked over, and there they were, walking past my hostel. I bolted. Part of me didn't want them to see me half dead and unshowered. (laughs) I know that feeling. The other part just didn't want to see them traveling as I'd hope we would be. Halfway around the world, I finally accepted my rejection and let that fantasy go. Currently, I'm on my flight back to Portland after... 
after six months away, and I can say I have zero regrets about my choice. I still love the romantic fantasy of the man in Italy, but reality always wins, and that boy just isn't for me. (laughs) So I want to just back up the tape a little bit. For Cheryl and everyone wildly applauding for Cheryl (laughs) and her big, beating Minnesota nice heart and all of you who were saying to me, oh, you scold, you wag. What are we to to say about this? Well, you know what's interesting that we discussed... What is interesting? (laughs) Tell me, Cheryl, what's interesting. We thought we were so struck by uh, what Wanderluster said in her follow-up to us, but even what we said on the tape is that I said, I believe the things people tell me about themselves. That's so right. In, That's the, right. in the letter, she, and she's even saying, I misrepresented my intentions and my hopes. And so I was giving her advice, and so were you. Right. If you say this seems fun, we're going to trust you. And I'm going to always say, go have fun, um, even if your heart gets broken, because actually right. I end up, you learn something. Right. Right. And I I mean, I think, look, you know, when I write about bad stories, sometimes they're consciously constructed. Sometimes they're propagandistic. Uh, They they have a a kind of ill intention. But most of the time they are constructed out of our wishes and out of our fantasies and, you know, our hopes that the world will be kind and the hot guy will be there waiting for us. And we and that if he dumps you, there will be another hot guy. That, that's Cheryl. That there'll true. be another hot guy. There will always be another guy coming down the beach. That's that's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the problem. I mean, the, really, for me, what was unsettling when I read the letter the first time and we talked about it is if you're calling him a boy, I've got some concerns. And, and Wanderluster herself recognized it. Believe me, he's a boy. He's yeah. not a man. Yeah. Because a man is honest about what his involvements are, what, how available he is emotionally. And I think of people who are not at that moral stage yet um, as people who are more like children. They're careless and reckless. They're boys rather than men. But, you know, what we want to say to you, Wanderluster, is, is actually this is a revelation that you wrote a letter and then you revised it. You realized yourself that you told us the, the incorrect story. And then, and then what's cool about life is that we're constantly doing that, that there will always be, I think, another layer of what is the deepest truth. And, um, and we can't always know it at the time. Right, because we're all ultimately unreliable narrators. We have a radically subjective view of events that might be objectively true, but you know, the way that we see them is with our hearts right? Not with our minds and certainly sometimes not even with our eyes. And I think that's a part of the human struggle. I'm trying to be very forgiving of the times that I do that because mm-hmm. I don't think that there's an ill intention there. I think there's quite a beautiful intention, but it's one that lets us in for danger unless we catch it in time. And wanderluster is to be congratulated wherever you are out there yeah. for catching it in time. That's pretty. You might not have recognized it when you wrote us. But I'll bet you that writing to us was part of the journey to saying, this is maybe not such a good idea. I would be better to spend that six months traveling the world alone and figuring out who I am and what I want from it. And I just know deep in my heart, Wanderluster, that there is an Italian in the future for you. Um, 
So listen, we're going to move on because we have a, a really interesting guest tonight. Omar el is an author and journalist. For 10 years, he traveled around the world to cover stories such as the NATO-led invasion of Afghanistan, the military trials in Guantanamo Bay, and the Arab Spring protests in Egypt. He's a recipient of Canada's National Newspaper Award for Investigative Reporting and the Jeff Penny Memorial Award for Young Journalists. His debut novel, American War, won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award and has been listed as one of the best books of the year in the New York Times, the Washington Post, GQ, and several other publications. Please join us in welcoming Omar to the stage. Welcome to Dear Sugars, Yeah, Omar. welcome to Dear Sugars. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. As you probably heard when you're backstage, we're talking about bad stories uh, tonight. And I'm, I'm curious, in your own life, uh, do you have stories that you've told yourself that you had to revise as you, as you evolved and changed? Do I have bad stories? I have almost nothing but. Um, <laughs> That's a well, great think answer. of one. Could you think of one? Yeah, and tell us? yeah, yeah. This is from a few years ago. I, I had met this hot guy in Italy. <laughs> wow. I <laughs> like it. I am kidding. Um, <laughs> he, he was, was a not boy. that hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, there, there is actually a bad story that takes place in Italy, for real. Um, it was about midnight, and I get a phone call. My parents were on a cruise, and um, they stopped in Naples. And my dad had suffered a heart attack. And so oh. I get this phone call saying, you know, your dad's in surgery. And then an hour after that, I get a phone call saying, your dad passed away. Wow. Um, and my dad was really young. He was 56. Um, and so when I tell that story, the, the, there's a sense of, oh, it's, it's a very clear-cut bad story. You had to suffer through this. And, and, right. um, but that's not what sticks with me. What sticks with me is that um, a death overseas is, is one of the few times where life perfectly imitates a William Faulkner novel. Mm-hmm. Everything is difficult and miserable. And so I fly, I fly over to, to Naples and I spend the next few days getting uh, permits to move the body. My father always wanted to be buried in Egypt, which is where he was born. And, um, you know, you're, you're in the consulate, you're doing all of this stuff. And for a while, I thought that that was what made it a bad story for me. But in fact, what made it a bad story is that I wanted that stuff because it allowed me to completely sidestep the process of actually mourning. Right. Um, and so it was only years later that it occurred to me that, you know, emotional wounds scar up real quick. Yeah. And yep. if you don't do the work of actually sort of mourning and doing all of that in the moment, it never goes away. Right. Um, and I think about that every day, about this process of what I should have done versus what I busied myself doing. Yeah. Wow. wow. I love how that's constructed. So many of our letters, Cheryl, that yeah. we get are really, you know, people who have, that scar tissue has, has, has grown over it and um, they're trying to go back in. And we have to say to them, essentially, it's, it's time to go back and, and do that work. You haven't mourned this. You haven't mourned the loss of this relationship, of this marriage, of this beloved relative, whatever it is. Um, well, one of the things that... Uh, yeah, that I have to say that that's some like serious sugar that he just set yeah. down. It was like you, epigrammatic wisdom. One of the things that uh, is so striking about this novel um, is that you're able to get at 
the universality of hatred and the impulse for revenge. I mean, you just got it. There is America has gone uh, even more tribal uh, than it is. And we want to actually read you a letter that that has to do with that very idea of hatred, how it forms and how we might uninform it. Or... Yeah, I'll read it. Dear Sugars, my aunt has essentially taken the place of my mother since I was a little boy. She's always been there when I needed any kind of support. I'm not in touch with most of my family, so she's been the rock in my life. The problem is she's a horrible racist. Her beliefs are ignorant, violent, and based on misguided notions. For years, we've been able to talk about our beliefs calmly and disagree in a healthy way. But as she gets older and things get more tense in the United States, she's grown more hateful in her stance. I won't repeat some of the things she said recently because they simply aren't worth repeating. I believe all people are essentially good. They experience hate because they're confused about how things truly are. My religious beliefs tell me I should be tolerant of my aunt and not accept or validate her beliefs, but instead listen to her with an open heart and make my point of view clear. I believe that's the only way to move forward personally and in society, but her particular brand of hate is toxic. It burns me not just when we're discussing beliefs or current affairs, but when we talk about anything. Signed, trying to be tolerant. And this, I want to say, um, this is a kind of letter that we've been getting, I think, in increasing numbers yep. um, in the lead up to the election and after the election, that, that, that as the country has become more divisive, um, so have families and friendships. What do you think, Omar? So, I mean, I, uh, first off, I, get, I, I should thank him for writing the letter. That's, you know, I, I don't want to thank someone for having the courage to admit racism exists, but it, that, that's a letter that would have been much easier not to write. Right. Um, and that's something we do with our family members all the time. You know, half of being in a family is just ignoring stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, that's kind of... I'll, I'll buy that T-shirt. Um, you know, across the board. <laughs> um, but there's... Okay, so, so first off, this, this notion that that America is particularly tribal right now. I'm not 100% sure I agree with that. I think what's happening in America right now is that the things that for a very long time have been whispered are now being shouted because people feel like they have the freedom and yep. they have the okay to do that. Right, that's in the letter, yeah. It's, it's this notion of, of what's acceptable to say rather than what has always been said. Mm -hmm. um, look, we're taping this in, in Portland. Uh, down the street, Highway 5 runs through this city. When Highway 5 was first designed to run through the city, it was deliberately run through predominantly black neighborhoods as part of an effort to displace them. Right. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring this up is because I think that there is something very, very comforting about assuming that the idea of racism is individual right. and is the purview of monsters, which is to say racism is the person wearing the Klan hood burning a cross on the lawn. Right. But in reality, the vast majority of racism that takes place in this country is, to, is done by people who are perfectly capable of love who are genteel and kind and dressed up in all kinds of clothes of respectability. And so I think for this gentleman, there's, there's two things to think about, the individual versus societal obligation. The individual obligation to his aunt is a function of his own conscience. What kind of human being does he want to be? Does he want to be the kind of human being who just lets this slide? Which would be very easy to do and largely would not create that much more harm. Or does he want to be the person who stands up to this sort of thing? Mm -hmm. But what's really sort of heartbreaking about this is the idea that the bigger obligation to his aunt, the societal obligation, has to do with trying to create the kind of 
world, the kind of society where his aunt wouldn't have grown up like this, wouldn't right. have developed mm -hmm. these views, mm -hmm. you know, and that involves acknowledging your history and that involves raising the voices of people who have been victims of this kind of racism. And that involves a lot of hard work that after you take all of it might still be too late in the case of his aunt. Mm -hmm. Right. But yet you have that obligation because I think more so than learning how to deal with, with your aunt, you have an obligation to create the conditions where this doesn't keep happening over and over again. Right. Those are two very different things. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great advice. Yeah. One small question that maybe we need to close with in addressing Tolerant is that I think really he's asking, how do I function in this relationship? This yeah. is a woman I love. Not only do I love, she's, she's essentially my mom. She's my rock, he says. Mm -hmm. And she has toxic ideas that offend me and hurt me and harm others, right? So what do I do with this? Can I love somebody who has these beliefs that are so awful, so hateful. You know, I think that what you said about the voices getting louder, Omar, is really true. That this aunt might have always been a racist, probably was. Right. But she feels emboldened by yeah. these times to express those things more loudly. And the consequence of that might be tolerant, that you have to give your aunt the consequences that, that she's brought about herself. And that is, she loses you a little bit. Maybe not entirely, but maybe you say, I'm going to set the boundary that I won't be in your company when you say those things. That's right. yeah. And I think that that can be a really loving thing. I've, oh, I've talked a lot about boundaries, that boundaries are love. They're saying, I respect who you are, but I also respect who I am. And this is what I need if we're going to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree completely. Um, I, I think if we're going to talk about love, we should define in, in the context of this letter what that word means. Um, which is to say, I mean, writers like James Baldwin talked about this much more clearly than I ever can, but this notion of how much damage racism does to the racist, which is right. to say that it forces them to believe in this wholly fraudulent supremacy. Um, and then when reality doesn't bear any of that true, they become incredibly angry. Right. And so to live your life both delusional and angry is a very difficult way to live a life. Yeah. Um, right. And so... If we're going to talk about this gentleman's obligation to his aunt in terms of love, love requires you to do what's difficult. You know, to sidestep all of that is not love, it's abdication. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Omar, thank you so much yeah, for being on Yeah, thank you. Omar Alakad. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, uh, so this is now the wine drinking portion of the evening. So I'll just say, you guys are so intense. Yeah. You know, these, these things you wrote on these cards, um, it's a lot, really. Um, <laughs> it's a lot. And I should say, these weren't just any index cards that we handed out. For this Bad Stories episode, we wrote, what's the bad story you tell yourself, the one that undermines your happiness? So that's what y'all wrote on, the, on these cards. And so I'm going to ask you one, Cheryl. I'm from a small town in Iowa and came from a poor family. What do I know about how the world works? I never graduated from university, so I don't feel equal to my friends. Okay, well, that is a question right up my alley, because I grew up in a small town in Minnesota in a poor family. Didn't have money, didn't have, you know, didn't come from an educated family or, or anything like that. And I thought that I didn't know how the world worked. Um, because I thought that the world was out there. Right. And what I learned the moment I ventured into the world, which I'm really going to guess you already know, you, whoever wrote this on your card, is that there's, there's a whole world in all of us, in every place, in every situation. And everything you know from the life you had um, is valuable and important. And it's a story we need to hear. And it's your job to tell it in any way that you can. It, I, don't, I, I tell it literally because I'm a writer. But, but I mean, the way that you bring the full force of your humanity to your life every day is what matters. Yeah. And, and truly, almost nothing else does. So it's not about whether you're educated or uneducated or rich or poor or, you know, this or that or the other thing. It's, it's about who you are, how and, and, and how you make manifest all of the beauty that you have to offer others. I mean, I think what might have compelled you to write that, that question is, of course, the culture tells us otherwise. Don't get me wrong. By, by being sort of optimistic in my answer to you, I don't mean to say that it's not hard to reject that story because everything has conspired to tell you that you, you're not worth much. But I'm here to tell you it isn't true. Mm -hmm. When I read, I'm from a small town in Iowa and came from a poor family, I think, boy, that person probably has a lot to teach me. Uh, because the predominant images that we see in our culture are of rich, powerful people in big cities. Kurt Vonnegut said something that, that's in bad stories that I've, I've never forgotten. He, he said basically, almost all cultures on earth have uh, important folklore and received wisdom about how the meek and the poor uh, and the elderly are wise. They are people who are receptacles of wisdom, and we should listen to them. And actually, this is an American question. It's part of an American set of pathologies about wealth equaling worth in some way. And uh, we've got to, you individually have to try to undo that by saying, you know, I have just as much to teach as anyone else. Yeah. Okay, so we read very quickly all the index cards, and, and I would say that the... Um, the one that we kept getting over and over again was some variation of this one. Um, I'm not enough. So that's not really a question, but it is a bad story. And I think it's one that a lot of us are familiar with. What yeah. do you make of that, Steve? Well, I make of it that, yeah, I'm not either. Join the club. Because that... <laughs> Because that feeling of not being enough is part of the essential human arrangement. And some of it is self-punishing and inhibiting and keeps us from... It may, it's learned helplessness. 
But there's another way of looking at that, which is that it's a transitory state. Mm -hmm. And by the way, how everyone feels in a particular moment. We walk around thinking everybody else has it made, and it's, it's not true. Everybody is feeling that they're not enough in particular moments. Doubt is a furnace. It is part of what uh, allows people like Cheryl, for instance, to say, I want to have a bigger life than the life that's been set out for me. I don't just want to be nice all my life. I want to speak fiercely. I want to say things that might be discomforting to people or even unsettling for me because that's the kind of life I want to lead. Um, so I, I want to caution you, since this is a common feeling, it's transitory, but it also is trying to teach you something, which is you, don't, you might not feel like enough now, but if you have a sense that you want to be more, that's a good thing. It's interesting. Uh, I had lunch today with the amazing and brilliant writer, Rebecca Skloot, um, yes. who's in the house. She and I had this great discussion about the nature of writing, which is, you know, very difficult. And is, of course, this, this paradox for, I think, every writer, and those of you who are writers in the room will know what I'm talking about, when, when it's like, okay, we allegedly love writing and we also hate writing. And, and we were talking about this, you know, grappling with our work and um, the notion of this feeling of self-loathing and, like, that you hadn't been doing enough. Like every day, I didn't do enough. I'm failing as a writer. I'm failing as a writer. And, and what's, what's interesting is we, what we, the, the conclusion we came to is basically what Steve just said. And that is, you know, on, there's some aspect of I'm not enough that's destructive and that keeps you from doing what you need to do. So you, you do have to say, I'm not going to believe that story. I'm going to somehow... Um, come up with any number of ways to say, that's not true, it's not true, it's not true. And sometimes that really is as simple as like that kind of mantra to the self. It's not true. I am enough. The other thing, the positive aspect of I am not enough is that it can be a driver. It can bring you to your knees. Um, in my process, that I've had to sort of surrender to the idea of my own and, and the truth of my own me mediocrity, by which I say, you know what? I really am not enough. I am not going to be able to, to write the brilliant book that I set out to write. But guess what I can do? I can write a book. And the book might suck. It might be mediocre. But the thing is, is my work isn't really to write the brilliant book. My right. work is to write the book. And, and the minute you do that, you are enough because you don't have to be everything. Right. And I think that that's the way to harness this negative voice into to, to channel it down a positive river, if you will, um, to, that, that it really actually contributes to what will eventually be enough. All right, I got one for you. Most men I date are trying to get over an ex. They think I can be their wild girl or the girl that pisses their ex off that they're dating me. I feel like I'm meant to be the rebound that helps others get over an ex and eventually find love. This is the bad story that this young woman, I'll assume, has constructed. Right. The first thing that comes to mind about a story like that is, you know, that really is a story that you've told yourself. You know, you get to, I think, be more clear and assertive with these people you get involved with about just saying, I'm not that person to you. 
And maybe that's really a conversation that you need to have with yourself. Yep. It's not so much what guys are drawn to you and what story they have that, that, that you think they have about you and what function you provide for them. It's really about, I think, the person that you choose. So maybe it's, it's about you not you know, getting involved with those guys who are on the rebound or who are looking for the wild girl. That you need to be brave enough um, to show your more vulnerable face so that they can't make a mistake about who you are or what your intentions are. And I say this because I know exactly that kind of caricature you're talking about. I think that there was this phase in my 20s, it was kind of a long phase. Um, <laughs> 20s, Where, 30s. you know, I actually, one of the, you know, I was actually, I wanted to be loved. I wanted connection. But what I pretended to be was the wild girl who just wanted to have fun and, you know, who just wanted, you know, would, would laugh and, you know, you could do whatever with me and I wouldn't, my feelings wouldn't be hurt. Um, and like the way I even wrote about this in Wild, I was like, I'm more like a guy sexually because it was the way I imagined guys were. And, you know, that's, that's like a really fun person who's just totally lying. And, right. and so maybe that's, <laughs> right? And so maybe the guys aren't the problem. You're lying to yourself about who you are and what you want. And the way to change it is to stop doing that. Right. I think that's just right. Uh, I, I would also say that we tend to engineer outcomes unconsciously. And uh, we, we typecast ourselves without even realizing it. So aside from saying, we well, really don't do that and set boundaries, I think part of what you need to do, since this is the story that keeps playing out, is say, what's my part in this story? To what extent am I playing this role because I want a certain kind of quick attention and I'm willing to trade yeah. that kind of attention for what I really want, which is an enduring love? And are there parts of me that are frightened? And that's okay. I was that way for years. I said, well, I want to get settled down and married and have kids and I want to be this family guy. And I just told myself that story and it was fraudulent. And that was why I never ended up in that situation. And, you know, I had to do some work, a lot of work to, to realize, um, you know what, I'm going to have to fix some things before I'm really ready for that kind of vulnerability. I'm ready for that kind of risk. And mo many of us would rather be the wild girl or be the dude, the bro, who's, you know, putting notches on the bedside. The it's Italian. The Italian. The stallion. All right, so what's a bad story you tell yourself, one that undermines your happiness? This is a little silly, but it's a silly one that I think has a deeper part. So one time I was in Hong Kong, and suddenly I pooped in my pants. <laughs> there on the street. My sister kindly guided me to a restaurant. I was profoundly unhappy at this point. <laughs> how, this is the question, how is this okay? <laughs> Cheryl Strayed, you're rather famous for pooping your pants. <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm giving away the next memoir, but okay. Oh my goodness. No, um, you know, I think... That, I love the, the, the pooping in your pants um, times of life. And, you know, it's a very humbling experience. Uh, but just by, just by a voice, how many people in the room have pooped their pants? <laughs> Woo! I, I mean, but I mean, above the age that you're supposed to poop your pants, you mean? Like, uh, that yeah. wasn't the question. Yeah, so. <laughs> but no, I, th I, I think what you just said is just right. I mean, this is like, this is part of life. Right. And, and this, is what, this is what brings us 
all together. Really, That's we right. are all, you know, pants poopers in the end. That's right. We're, we've long said it. The path to the truth runs through shame. And actually, the end of this, I should read the end of it because I think it's the answer to the question, whoever wrote this. After this brave person writes, how is this okay? They then write, is it okay because I was with my sister and got to be real? Mm. And the answer is, yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. Your sister helped you out. You needed something and you had a wise, true friend and she helped you out. Yeah. That's a real friend. That's a real friend. Thank you guys all for coming. What a, what a fun night for us. It means, it means a lot to us. So thank you. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our podcast producer is the wonderful Alexandra Lee Young. And our special event producer at Revolution Hall is the wonderful and amazing and polymathic Jim Brunberg. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at the Almighty Revolution Hall right here in Portland, Oregon. With our engineer, Neil Blake. Our mix engineer is Brad Fisher. Our theme music is by the wonderful Wonderly with vocals by Liz Weiss and tonight by Rebecca Miller. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. Or leave us a voicemail on our awesome and exciting new hotline at 929-399-8477. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. And most of all, thank you you guys for being here for listening to the podcast for telling bad stories and then also telling good stories thank you so much and we love you guys yeah thank we love you, you. Hey, listeners, you've probably figured out by now that we love to do live shows on Dear Sugars, and we're excited to announce that we're hosting another live show in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, June 30th. It's going to be the Dear Sugars Summer Party. We're going to answer letters from our inbox, take questions from the audience, and talk with some special guests. Tickets are on sale now at revolutionhall.com. That's revolutionhall, one word, dot com. We hope to see you there.